welcome to the Sober Witch Podcast. I'm Molly Moore, the Sober Witch. And today, or more specifically on the 11th of this month, it will be my 10-year sober anniversary. So in celebration of that, I'll be sharing my sobriety story with you. But before I get into all that, I did want to bring up a topic that a listener messaged me about. I won't mention the name or any specifics because I want to respect that person's anonymity. However, the things that they shared with me were just they're so I think they're applicable to a lot of people that are in recovery and a lot of people in recovery can relate to what this person shared. And especially the, with this time of year that we're just getting out of all these different holidays. I mean, it's it, I'm sure this person is not alone in in what their message said. So basically, this person relapsed on New Year's Eve and they're just desperately trying to get back on track. So like many of us who are in recovery and who have experienced a relapse or a lapse, they say that they're experiencing, you know, just a lot of guilt and disappointment, some embarrassment. And I got the impression as I was reading their message that there is also a lot of grief that they're experiencing due to lose, feeling like they're losing that sober time that they had prior to their lapse. So first, I want to say that there is a difference between a lapse and a relapse. A lapse, by definition, is a temporary failure of concentration, memory, or judgment. And the key word there is temporary. A relapse, on the other hand, by definition, is to suffer deterioration after a period of improvement. And the key word being there, deterioration. For myself, I've never allowed myself the grace to just have an actual lapse. Like in my past, once I've used something, I usually just go full on relapse um, and then end up staying drunk for years and years and lose everything all again. Um, but for this listener and anyone else listening, allow yourself the grace to let this lapse just stay a lapse. Allow it to be just a temporary hiccup that is just going to be so much easier to come back from than an actual relapse. Since I've never lapsed and have just relapsed in the past, I can't say for sure how I personally would feel about uh, claiming my previous sober time, but I, I hope I would allow myself to continue to claim it. Because I don't, I mean, coming back from a lapse is a huge, is a huge freaking deal. I mean, being able to come back from that lapse, it shows a great deal of self-awareness and forgiveness, self-forgiveness, self-compassion, strength. And hey, I mean, some discipline too, because it, it does take discipline to be able to get back on track that quickly. So, I mean, I think it's amazing for those who are able to come back from a lapse like that. I think it's necessary to learn from a lapse. I think it's important that we admit to it. We admit to a supportive person in our support network. And I say supportive with emphasis. We're not, I don't think we should admit lapses to those who are overly critical or who those, those who tend to overreact, but those who are supportive and grounded in our support network, maybe going to a 12-step meeting 
if that's your thing uh, or whatever recovery oriented activity brings you uh, comfort and kind of stokes your passions for sobriety i mean dig into the labs and see what caused it in the first place look too at the time prior to it because it is true that we often relapse or lapse in our mind prior to actually taking that first drink or that first drug uh, do do your shadow work and uncover those underlying insecurities that may have contributed to the lapse and create a plan for the next time that you might encounter those emotions, those feelings, those thoughts. But a lapse does not discount all the work that you've done up until this point. So I say it shouldn't discount your sobriety time. However, if it feels wrong or if it just doesn't sit right to claim that previous sober time, then don't. And two, if you're if you are working a twelve step program and you have a sponsor that you trust, talk to your sponsor about it and see what they suggest. But ultimately, do what you feel it sits right with you. But I am sending that listener and anyone else who might be going through a similar situation just all the love, all the strength, and all the support I can. I mean, you got this. You can get back on track. I know the holidays are a hard time. Just recenter get back on track, get support, do the work, stay strong and show yourself some grace. I've been seeing around, there's this quote that says, January 1st isn't the only day you can start over. And that is so true. It is not, I mean, it's not the end all be all of resolutions. We can set resolutions and goals and get back on track any day of the year. So, oh, and two, I'll go ahead and apologize for my voice. I am getting over a upper respiratory thing. So if my voice sounds a little weird, that'd be why. So as our sobriety time increases, sometimes we can get complacent, grandiose even, and have thoughts like, oh, I got this. I'm the best sober person there has ever been. I'm not capable of ever relapsing. But the truth is none of us are exempt. Right. So, I mean, we can have six months, two years, 10 years, 30 years sober, but no matter how long we have been sober, we still have to be cautious, humble, and keep our sobriety safeguards intact. So, while our anniversaries uh, are, of course, a time to celebrate, they're also a good time to remind ourselves of our lives before we got sober. Um, I should mention that. My story somewhat aligns with some aspects of the disease model of addiction, of once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Um, this is true for me, but it may not be true for you. It may, it's not true for everyone. I'm, like I mentioned in another episode, there are so many different models of addiction, and it's my belief that we have to find the one that suits us best, that's going to lead us towards uh, success for ourselves. Uh, at some point, I'm planning on doing an episode about harm reduction and moderation management, uh, but I can tell you now, as I will when I do that episode, that I have never, I have never been successful at moderating my drinking. Uh, so any information in that future episode will be entirely based on research and talking with others who have been successful. But alas for me, moderation management has always been a beautiful unicorn that I have never been able to catch, though I doggedly tried, as you'll <laughs> see from my story. Um, but fair warning, there will, of course, be mentions of some of the more unsavory aspects of the using life, though I'm 
going to try my best to be as brief as I can about my using years um, so that I can spend more time on the sober years. There will be some brief mentions, very surface kind of level mentions of uh, suicidal ideations, self-harm perhaps, uh, and some mental health issues. But again, I'm not going to be going too terribly into depth. Um, but so to begin with the very first drink, um, I was in middle school, probably sixth or seventh grade, and it was Jack Daniels. I drank Jack Daniels with my older brother and his friend. Um, and we began passing the bottle around. And when it got to me, I just started chugging. And I'll probably never understand why I felt this urge. Perhaps it's attributable to a genetic predisposition, but whatever it was at that time, it just felt right to just start chugging. Um, but I, I remember my brother's friends saying, damn, your sister can drink. And my brother looked really proudly at me and said, I taught her everything I know, which of course didn't make any sense because it was my very first time to drink. But this kind of positive reinforcement definitely inflated my pride and my ego. Um, it was like, hey, my brother is proud about, about uh, proud of me about something, uh, even though it's something stupid like drinking. But two, that night I told my brother I loved him and he told me he loved me. And these were words we not said to each other since we were in elementary school. And of course, naturally, I woke up the next morning with a trash can filled with my vomit and a terrible, terrible hangover. Um, but I mentioned this story because it was that ability to say, I love you to my brother that motivated much of my drinking throughout the years. Uh, it was that ability to have the freedom to say and do the things that I wanted to do and say without fear, you know, that liquid courage, as they say, and then use the same thing that provided that freedom as my scapegoat when the consequences of that freedom read their, reared their ugly heads. So, um, yeah, but more on that a little bit later. But marijuana quickly came after that. By the time I was in ninth grade, I was probably your standard stoner with a penchant for booze and nicotine. And then by the 10th grade, I was smoking two packs a day. I have, I have no idea how I was able to do that, but they were cheaper back then though. Um, and alcohol was my primary uh, substance of choice, but there, you know, there was a lot of other stuff I was doing as well. Um, but I carry around like vodka around in water bottles at school and all that. Um, but you know, high school was a hard time for me. I, I mean, not because I wasn't popular or because of boys or whatever else high schoolers worry about. It was just like, I, I just was not made to be a teenager. There are those people who really thrive in high school and I was not one of them. I just disliked what I felt was the frivolity of it all. Um, it was hard to find people to talk to about the things I wanted to talk about. And to be fair, it was hard to think the thoughts that I wanted to think about. I wanted to know everything that is unknowable. And I was arrogant enough to think that I would be one 
among all of humankind to discover the answers to things like, is there a God? What caused the Big Bang? Can the Big Bang and God coexist? If there is a God, does it care about us? You know, things like that. Uh, and it didn't help that I was reading as much of the lost and beat generation as I could, and then eventually stumbling onto the Russian novelists like Dostoevsky. But but I was, and I, and I still am very much a, a kind of an existential person and you put an existentially minded person into a setting like high school and the results are probably going to be bad <laughs> and they were for me i mean as you can imagine grave depression set in during those years and the drugs and alcohol just exacerbated all of it so um pain pills cocaine ecstasy and meth were also uh slowly you know being introduced to me around then i was sent to my uh, my first inpatient when I was 15, which did very little to assuage my my drug or alcohol usage or my depression for that matter. Um, the inpatient was followed up with my very first AA meeting where I introduced myself by saying, hi, I'm Molly Mora, and they tell me I'm an alcoholic. Uh, but yeah. And then I was sent to another inpatient drug treatment program when I was 17. This time, it was for three months and I went through the motions to satisfy my mom. Uh, and it was once again recommended that I attend AA, which I did again, just to make mom happy. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've recounted some of my earliest AA counters in another episode. So I won't repeat those except to say that they weren't awesome <laughs> and only added to the resentments I had towards the program. Uh, oh, and I forgot to mention that a little bit before that second inpatient treatment, so like around like 10th, 10th grade or so, was around the time that I discovered Everclear. And for those who don't know what Everclear is, it is a 100, 190 proof grain alcohol, which is about, I think, 95% alcohol by volume. And it was the most economic, economically and logistically sound choice of beverage for someone like me who was over, underage at the time, who couldn't always get booze whenever they wanted it. And it allowed me to get the most bang for my buck, I guess, and allowed me more time to pass before I had to start nagging my older friends to buy me more booze. But, but Everclear would become kind of a gauge for me throughout my drinking career. It was my drank <laughs> throughout high school and before I moved to Maine for college. And the only reason it stopped being my drink was, or my drink of choice, was because it's, a, or it was, I don't know if it still is, but it was illegal to buy in Maine at the time. Uh, but I moved to Maine uh, seeking kind of a geographical cure. I wasn't aiming to quit drinking completely, but I wanted to control it. And I thought moving to Maine, I'd be in a beautiful setting. I'd be in college, you know, in uh, with the vast minds of the college students. And I thought that that would help. I reduce a little bit of my drinking. And the first semester I was there, I did, I did very well in my classes. I made the Dean's list and all that but my drinking stayed pretty much the same. Uh, I was still drinking daily, but a handle of that bottom shelf five o'clock vodka would still last about probably a week. Um, but during the second semester, those handles started lasting maybe two days. 
Uh, so it, my alcohol consumption just went up exponentially because I had finally turned the magical age of 21. So, but even in Everclear free Maine, I still managed to wake up in the hospital twice from alcohol poisoning for the second and third time. I had one previous alcohol poisoning when I was still in my home state at the age of 19. But I mean, it's amazing. Like three times I had alcohol poisonings and every time I blamed the person who found me instead of, oh, I don't know, the alcohol. I would actually tell myself, God, if they just left me alone, I'd have been fine. Um, and as soon as I was all bandaged up, leaving the hospital in scrubs because the hospital had to throw away my clothing because they were drenched in my own urine and vomit, uh, I'd just be right back on the bottle that same day. I mean, it's just ridiculous, but that is addiction for you. So, but anywho, uh, <clears throat> so I had to move back home after only a year in Maine for my third stint in treatment. This time it was slightly different from the first two treatment episodes that I'd been through as a teenager, namely because this time I wanted to go. I mean, I, I didn't want to go, but I wanted to go. Uh, I'm sure if you have had to deal with a similar situation, you understand that. <laughs> I didn't want to go, but I wanted to go. Uh, I was 21 and I knew I needed a change. Uh, I mean, at that point, a handle of vodka was now lasting me only a couple of days. My depression was severe and my suicidal ideations were starting to come back up again. So, I mean, things were, things were getting bad again. So I went to detox, which is one of the hardest things I've ever done. It was rough, just physically rough. Um, if you've ever experienced alcohol or benzodiazepine withdrawals, you know what I'm talking about. It's the sweats, the shakes, the feeling of just wanting to climb out of your skin. Uh, I also began having seizures as well. So they had to put me on Librium, which is a benzodiazepine that helps with alcohol withdrawals. And then another symptom of alcohol withdrawal that I don't think enough people talk about is the back knee, like the, the acne that you get on your back. <laughs> Has anyone else had to deal with that? Man, I've, I've never had issues with my skin before that, but oh my God, when I was detoxing and sobering up, my back just exploded with acne. I mean, it was temporary and it went away relatively quickly, but it was, you know, obviously it's super uncomfortable. Uh, but after detox, I went to inpatient for a month where they thankfully weaned me off the Librium that I was already becoming a really big fan of uh, because it's very addictive. But uh, that was followed up by outpatient and then aftercare uh, while I also was going to AA. And this time I attempted genuinely to work the steps in AA, like as they were pretty much as they were prescribed. Um, I modified the word God to creator, which was more of a nod to the Big Bang than to a deity. Uh, but it was a little bit more digestible to me and it satisfied my sponsor. I even went to an AA women's retreat during this time in the program, which I found to be surprisingly enjoyable. It was like at a campground where we stayed four women to each cabin. Yeah, and I still remember having an incredible meditation experience while sitting alone on a large rock next to the lake during the retreat. It was oh, it's so fantastic. Um, and I stayed sober for maybe two years after that. 
and I was really rebuilding things, rebuilding my relationships with my parents, with my siblings. Uh, I lived with my parents at the time and I got hired at a used bookstore that I just absolutely loved. I loved that job so much. And I was eventually able to get a little apartment with one of my uh, female friends. And then one night I was hanging out with a friend I'd not seen in, in a while. And we went to see one of his friends and his friend was smoking pot. And I don't know if it was that night or another night, um, but I decided to indulge. And uh, it wasn't alcohol and I was thinking it, everything would be fine, but after a while it did lead back to alcohol. It wasn't immediate, but it occurred over a period of a few months or more. I mean, one night I was stoned with my, my friend, I think it was those same friends. I had cotton mouth and the only thing available was a beer. And I say to myself, ah, well, I never really liked beer much anyways. It's basically water. so. So I went ahead and had the beer. And then a few days pass. Well, since I had the beer, maybe I'll just have a little bottle of sake as well. And the amount of alcohol-free days in between drinking days began, it kind of began to get fewer and fewer. Uh, another few weeks pass of only buying sake. But then, you know, the thought pops up, well, you know, wine is full of antioxidants, which is good for my health. So I might get a bottle of that and then less and less alcohol free days. And then we're back to hard liquor. So there was a few months where I felt like I was able to drink like a normal person. I felt like a classy drinker. <laughs> um, but near the end, I mean, it progressed. It always it's it progressed relatively quickly after I got onto the hard liquor because that's my thing. And so it there I'm sure it was like maybe a month or two where I was able to play like I'm a classy drinker, but I ain't a classy drinker. Um, but yeah, so but I mean near the end at the at least the last two years prior to me getting sober this last time, I was getting blackout drunk like every night. So and I remember there was an entire year where I couldn't even have a proper bowel movement, a, a proper shit, because I was drinking too much. So, Lord. Um, I, I do have to admit, though, that um, psilocybin played a, a part initially in planting a seed to want to get sober. It was probably like two years prior to my sobriety date of 111 2014 even though I was a mess, at least I was still wise enough to kind of respect shrooms as a sacred plant, which they are, and they have been shown to be very effective in uh, a lot of the studies that do, they're doing for mental health, uh, PTSD, and uh, addiction treatment, actually. So I, I, I remember sitting and tripping in my little crummy apartment, and it was just me and my little dog, Darwin, who I mentioned in a previous episode, rest in peace. Um, and I had that feeling that occurs for many people when they are on psychedelics, particularly I think with, uh, with psilocybin, but it's that feeling of just there being too much excess in our life and not the right kind of excess. And I had this overwhelming feeling that I was fine without anything. And I, 
I was questioning myself, you know, why, why is it that I constantly feel I need this alcohol in my body to feel okay? And I didn't drink anything that night while I was tripping and I felt fine. I felt content within myself, but despite my shroom experience, not much changed <laughs> after that. And indeed my drinking actually got pretty well worse. I usually drink during my lunch breaks at work, sometimes indulged in what I affectionately referred to as breakfast wine, which I thought was a step in the right direction from breakfast whiskey. Uh, I sometimes secretly brought in booze in a travel container to drink at work. Uh, alas, my drinking finally created one of those really big problems that pivot everything in our lives, and that was being fired from the used bookstore that I loved so much and that I'd been working at for, uh, at that time, five years. So, I mean, I'd allowed so much of my identity to be tied to that job. My friends, my relationships, I mean, to a certain extent, my sense of self, I mean, not to mention my health insurance and my ability to pay my rent, it's all tied to that place. So I was fired due to issues with uh, tardiness and absences, which were all drinking related. And it was a huge blow. I mean, I had to break my apartment lease early. And since I lost my health insurance, I had to start rationing my prescriptions, which were the only substances I actually took responsibly. Um, and luckily for me though, I, and unfortunately probably <laughs> for her, but my best friend who I've known since I was three years old took me and my little dog in. And it was my friend, her husband, her toddler, and uh, another one of their friends and me all hanging or all living in this house together. And everyone except, of course, uh, the toddler indulged a little bit in the drugs and alcohol to a certain extent. Uh, but this was one of those dark times that are necessary to elicit change. I got another job quickly enough, but any income I had went to, be, went to booze. I believe I lived there, God, like seven months, and I only ended up paying my friend maybe once or twice, if that. So, I mean, for a short time, I got into some less than tasteful lines of work to make some extra money. Um, but I found the things that I had to do to make that money just uh, caused me to drink more because it was, like I said, kind of unsavory work. But... Um, but, and eventually my friend had to sit down with me about my drinking after a particularly bad night where I had been incredibly rude to her and some other people at the house. And I once again had to apologize for things I couldn't even remember doing. And after that, I declared I would not drink for a month and I was successful. It was hell and it was dangerous, uh, but I was lucky that my withdrawals didn't result in seizures as they, as they had the last time. But it may it may have been related because I was like smoking a ton of pot. I mean, like to an excessive degree, probably to compensate for the lack of the booze. But um, but after a month, you know, after the month of being alcohol free was up, I went back to drinking and. 
made up for lost time. I remember feeling like alcohol was kind of pissed off at me that I ghosted it for a whole month and wanted to get back at me. But uh, anyway, as the months wore on, though, my depression just got worse and worse. Near the end, those suicidal ideations began to crop up again. And I tried not to show the extent that I was depressed. And I thought I was doing a good job, but my friend would tell me later that it was so clearly obvious how depressed I was. But eventually she did have no choice but to ask me to leave. And I was once again lucky enough to have someone to catch me when I, when I fall. And that was my parents. And I am well aware that not everyone has that kind of option. And I am just so unbelievably grateful to my parents and will forever be making a living amends to them because they have helped me and cared for me and supported me while I was just a mess. So, so I packed up my books and I got my little dog and moved back in with my folks. I had continued to lie to my mom that I was sober whenever she asked uh, I try my best not to even bring up this subject though, so that I could kind of lie by omission, but she would later tell me that she had suspected I had relapsed a long time ago. So, um, but I remember being in my bedroom at night and both of my parents were asleep and I went to my closet to pour myself another secretive drink. And it just kind of hit me like, I'm a 27-year-old woman living with her parents, secretly drinking booze out of her closet. And it was like, nothing's changed since high school. And I hated high school. <laughs> so, I mean, and the next day I, I intentionally bought a bottle of kosher wine because I knew it tasted like shit and poured out the remainder of the whiskey I had stashed away. And this was yet another attempt to modify my drinking. It was January 1st of 2014 that I had my last drink. However, I continued to smoke pot to deal with the withdrawals from the alcohol, which is why my sobriety date is 1-11-14 instead of 1-2-14. But of course, I don't recommend this to anyone because it is incredibly dangerous depending on how much you're drinking. Like inpatient medical detox is not always necessary, but just remember alcohol and benzos are the primary two substances where we can die from the withdrawal. So pot is not all, you know, always going to be the safe. It's not the safest route to dealing with um, alcohol withdrawal. So anyway, for me, I knew I needed additional help and due to it being familiar and the only thing that had helped me stay sober in the past, I begrudgingly went back to AA. Uh, and this last time in AA was, <clears throat> it was definitely the most effective. And I have to credit one woman who I won't name for anonymity's sake, but who already knows how much gratitude I have for her. I only had a couple days sober from everything at that that time when I shared with the group, having no problem at all saying my name is Molly and I am definitely an effing alcoholic. I'm sure I blathered on about how bad my life was and how much it sucked not to drink and so on and so forth. But I also mentioned excuse me, I also mentioned my exceptionally large and numerous resentments towards AA itself. 
I gave voice to all the wrongs past members had done to me during my previous experiences. And I blamed AA for all my active drinking years because of what I perceived was their overt religiosity and unacceptance of other belief systems. I can't, I mean, I can't remember everything that I said or shared that day, but I do remember that I said, in trying to set my boundaries down just right away with the group, I said, I don't need your God or your Bible. I just need you all. Uh, had I shared something like that in the early 2000s, as some of the other groups I'd been to, I would have either been ostracized or swarmed by proselytizers trying to convert me. But instead, after this meeting, this incredible woman came up to me and told me about how she knew of atheists and agnostics who were able to put their own spin on the program and work the steps. And they had years and years of sobriety. And that was all she said. And it wasn't as just a simple thing though that she said. I mean, to me, it was major validation. It provided the impetus that allowed me to begin taking steps towards changing my life for the better, just knowing that it was possible that another person knew of others, <laughs> these mystical others like me who were successful in their sobriety and didn't have to work the AA program as prescribed as it's written. I mean, it was a huge motivation to keep going. And for so long, I tied AA sobriety and Christianity all together because that is how all the previous groups and members had presented it to me. It was like, you can't stay sober without AA in the steps, and you can't work the steps without believing in God, and that God has to be the Christian God. But that beautiful woman, who also happened to be a Christian, allowed me to finally untangle all that. After that meeting, I went home, I got my Alcoholics Anonymous big book out, and I put a tab on all the blank pages in the book. On the inside of the back cover of the book, I wrote, there are 15 blank or nearly blank pages in here, so atheist up this book. On the inside of the front cover, I wrote a header that said the 12 steps of Molly Mora's AA program. And then I wrote step one, remember I am powerless when it comes to the drink and a shit ton of other things. And after that, I just kept revising the steps and adding them to that, that front flap of the book as I encountered him so that they fit me personally. Um, I also blocked and deleted numbers for my phone I'm pretty sure the only person I actually reached out to was my best friend who I mentioned earlier, the one that I moved in with and who subsequently had to kick me out. <laughs> but I had no animosity towards her at all for kicking me. Not even at the time that she was doing it, I had no animosity. Um, I mean, I couldn't blame her at all for for kicking me out. I was In my mind, I was like, yeah, I, I would kick myself out too. Um, but I called her though. And I told her that I was trying to stay, stay sober again. And I let her know that I wouldn't be able to hang out with her for a little bit, at least not in person, since she and her husband still dabbled in substances and drank alcohol. And I just couldn't be around all that while I was still so vulnerable. And I let her know that I loved her so much and I appreciated everything that she'd done for me. And she was incredibly happy for me, albeit sad that we would have reduced visits with one another. And she asked when I 
thought I would be ready to start hanging out again. But of course, I didn't know it. But I did say, you know, we're lifelong friends. So no matter how much time passes, we will always come together as if no, no time has passed at all. And that was true. It was probably a little less than a year when I saw her in person again. And it was as if no time had passed at all, probably because we were texting um, each other, you know, during our actual physical absence from each other. And at some point, uh, I'll do an episode, uh, like a deep dive episode into the 12 steps and how I worked them. But for this episode, I won't do <laughs> I'll try not to do that because it'll be far too long. Uh, for now, I'll, I'll just say that I worked the 12 steps for real. In my opinion, we get a deeper experience rather, and we work the steps harder if we're modifying them to work for us. If we choose to do AA or any 12-step program, my best advice is find a group you love, but think for yourself and question AA, kind of like Tim Leary's think for yourself question authority. But I worked the program at my pace. I questioned the cliches to find if they were actually helpful to my personal program of recovery. I did go to multiple media meetings a day at first because I felt I needed to, not because anyone told me to, but because I felt I needed to be around recovery often because I still wanted to drink often. I was still struggling with cravings and urges. So I read the AA book again. I crossed out any mention of God and wrote in different replacements like uh, higher power, higher self, the great abyss sometimes, uh, grand mystery, whatever. Uh, and I wrote criticisms, criticisms of the text in the margins of revising where I could and marked important things with huge exclamation marks. I wrote motivational quotes on the blank pages I'd put tabs on before. Um, and a lot of those quotes came from the, I know I've mentioned this website before, but it is extremely help, helpful, aaagnostica.org. I mean, I devoured all the articles I could find on that website. So, um, and I worked the steps one through three on my own without a sponsor. And it took a good, I took a good long time doing those too, because they are important steps. And when I got to the fourth step, I did try to do it on my own, but I don't want, well, I don't want to say that I had a breakdown, but I definitely sobbed quite a bit during a woman's meeting because of it. I was just kind of getting overwhelmed with it because it, you know, it's where we kind of write down all of our mistakes and our resentments and all that. But so uh, I had many supportive women come up afterwards. And luckily one of them was a woman I'd had my eye on for a little bit. Her actions outside of meetings matched her words within meetings. So, I mean, I felt she had integrity, strong sobriety, and she did not try to force her religious beliefs on me. She was a strong and solid Christian. And by that, I mean her faith did not rely on converting others or trying to convince others of her faith. Hers was like a quiet faith that she cultivated lovingly within herself. And I very much respected her and loved her because of this, but it, for many reasons I loved her. But um, but I continued through the steps and completed them with her by my side. Of course, the steps are never 
really completed. Um, things like step one is something that I'll be doing for the rest of my life, hopefully. Uh, taking inventory, admitting my wrongs, making amends, continuously working to improve myself so that I'm not repeating the same behaviors or mistakes over and over again. Um, these are all things, if I remain sober, alive, and hopefully competent, that I'll be doing for the rest of my life. Let's see. And then, oh, and then eventually someone suggested that I look into becoming a licensed chemical dependency counselor. So I did, and I ended up going back to school for that. And I remember when I was enrolling into my classes, the admissions lady actually had some experience either with counseling or with addiction or maybe both. But I remember her telling me, be careful if you're in recovery and becoming an LCDC, because I know a lot of counselors in recovery who end up relapsing. And I paid heed to that. I've been careful not to overly rely on work to support my own recovery. It's just one aspect of many safeguards, many, many safeguards I have in place. And I've intentionally tried to build my life around my sobriety. I've done this because in doing so, I know without a doubt, if I ever relapse, everything will crumble around me. I, I mean, I, I know that sounds like, why would you do that? But it, it, for me, it ensures like, why would I risk it? I, I mentioned the, uh, the unicorn of moderation management earlier in the episode. And it can be a very appealing thing, you know, thinking like, oh, well, maybe I can drink now. You know, it's been, I've been sober for 10 years. Maybe I can control it now. But at this point in my life and with everything that I've gained and everything that I've learned and just the progress that I've made and I mean, it's just not worth it. You know, why would I try to catch the unicorn now? <laughs> There's no reason to. I would gain nothing from catching the unicorn now. Anyway, um, but it's, it's so amazing to look back and see like where my witchcraft was hidden throughout the years. Like even as a somewhat militant atheist, I was always fascinated with the occult and magic. And I studied the ruins and I had ruins and I had tarot decks and I studied the tarot. And before I even, I mean, all that before I even considered myself a witch, but it really wasn't until this round of sobriety when I first got sober again, that it all kind of became clear. Like it, it's funny as I think about it, a couple of more evangelical Christian Bible thumping AA members I had encounters with, they would bring up step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Then they would say, just you wait, Molly. <laughs> uh, and just you wait. I was angry at Jesus before, just like you, but just you wait, you'll come around to him. And side note, I wasn't angry at Jesus. I didn't, I just didn't believe in Jesus as the son of God. You know, I just didn't believe in Christianity. But to be fair to them, they were right about one thing, or at least the 12th step was right. I did indeed have a spiritual awakening as a result of doing my version of the steps, along with doing a great many other spiritual practices and spiritual exercises but my awakening didn't turn me into a Christian. It turned me into a witch. Wow. This episode is probably really long, but 
Uh, so I won't, we won't be doing a, a ritual today, but we will next time. Uh, but if you have any questions, concerns, suggestions, please send me a message at the sober witch podcast on Instagram or at Molly, the sober witch at gmail.com. I hope you have a wonderful in bulk because I'll, I'll probably not get another episode out before then. So uh, have a wonderful and productive in bulk. And as always, keep your sobriety strong and your witchcraft powerful.